This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Eric Goldman, and my guest today is Lara Shin. Lara is a crypto journalist, host of the Unchained podcast, and author of the book, The Cryptopians. While writing her book, Lara uncovered one of the biggest mysteries in crypto, who was behind the 2016 DAO hack on Ethereum. We cover that episode in detail, her methods for gathering information in crypto more broadly, and what she learned from studying the founding of Ethereum. Please enjoy my conversation with Lara Shin. I'm excited to have Laura Shin on the podcast. Laura is a journalist, podcast host, and now author of the book, Cryptopians, Idealism, Greed, Lies, and the Making of the First Big Cryptocurrency Craze. Laura, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Before we get into the book, and it's a very exciting book that reads like it's made for the movies, I wanted to take a step back and talk about your childhood. As a kid, did you know I want to be a journalist? When did journalism become your path? I knew I wanted to be a writer. I've known that since I was nine. I had written some ebooks before, but this is my first real book that will be distributed in bookstores and everything. And I think it was just, I just love to read. Even now, if I'm given the choice of reading versus watching something or whatever, I would choose to read a book. I actually always loved to learn. My parents definitely were like, Laura's really into school. That was the main thing they noticed. That I was extremely enthusiastic about it. I was really involved in things. If I got really sick and I couldn't go to school, I would be super upset to the point where they thought it was kind of abnormal and weird. But I feel that that's maybe what led me to journalism because I love to learn. I just feel like my job is so cool. I can just show up and be like, hey, tell me about this thing that I'm interested in. And then people will teach me about it. I mean, how awesome is that? That's kind of how I got into crypto. Seven years ago, I just found out about this thing. I thought it was super fascinating. I could not stop asking questions. Even to this day, seven years later, I'm insatiably curious about it. And I can call up people at the center of the action and have them explain it to me. And just by virtue of the fact that I say that I'm a journalist. And so I feel like this job is perfect in the sense that gives me the intellectual stimulation, the creative stimulation, then I can fulfill my entrepreneurial interests. Interesting that you even knew it at the age of nine so innately that that's what you wanted to do, which is pretty cool. I was a voracious reader. So seven years ago, you got into crypto. What was that first poll or that first story of how you started to get interested in it? I was a contributor at Forbes at the time. I was covering personal finance and I wanted to do something different. And they said, hey, we have this idea to do a Forbes FinTech 50 list. Why don't you head it up with another reporter? So she and I just divided it into categories. And I took the category digital currency. And interestingly, one of the very first interviews I ever did about Bitcoin was with somebody who just was so passionate about it. And he was explaining it to me with his arms flailing. He just was so animated. And I, in that discussion, understood 
oh, wow, this is going to change everything. And I also feel like I understood that because through doing the FinTech 50 list, when I was doing these interviews, I was always asking people like, what problem are you trying to solve with your new product or service? And so they were telling me what all the problems were with the banking industry and how it was decades old technology and all this stuff. So I was becoming intimately aware of just how antiquated our financial system was. And then when I understood how a blockchain worked, it was so obvious that that was a superior technology. There was just no question. Immediately, I realized, first of all, this is a story. This is interesting. This is something new. This is something we haven't heard before. Pretty immediately, you know, I wrote this big Forbes piece for the magazine. It wasn't the cover story, but I got a cover line. Then after that, I was spending all my non-work time trying to learn about Bitcoin. And back in 2015, there were not as many good resources as there are today. So I remember it was funny because I came across some resources put out by... I don't remember if it was exactly Digital Currency Group, which is a really well-known company in the space now, and they have a lot of successful businesses, but maybe it was related to them or I forget, but somehow it had this imprimatur of being a good source. But even at that time, I could tell, oh, this is already outdated. They made it a year ago or whatever, and it's already outdated. And just feeling like, oh, well, if this reputable company doesn't even have a good resource, then where can I go? Thankfully, because I was writing for Forbes, I could just call anybody up and say, tell me about this, tell me about that. And so I was just learning by writing articles. So today there's podcasts, there's dedicated websites, there's magazines, there's books. What was Forbes editorial thoughts on you writing about crypto back then? Was it keep going, expand this, everybody's interested or is, we'll do one every quarter or something? Well, the good news is because I was a contributor, I was the one who was deciding what to write. But... You're right. At some point in there, they were like, why don't you come on here full time? And I said, I'll do that only if you let me write about Bitcoin, write only about Bitcoin or blockchain or whatever it was called then. And they were like, oh no, because nobody was interested. What was fascinating was I was actually being paid by page views. So my personal finance and career articles were generating a ton of page views. I was making a lot of money from those, but I was bored of writing them. It was this funny thing where basically I would pay myself by writing those, just generate a bunch of page views. And then I was treating myself to writing about the Bitcoin and blockchain stuff. That was what I did for fun. And I wasn't going to make money from it, but that's what I loved to do. And so eventually in 2017, when Bitcoin and blockchain and Ethereum and initial coin offerings really was what the thing was at the time, when that started taking off, then finally Forbes was willing to let me come on full-time and cover only what was then by then called crypto. Right around that time, I think it was 2018, you did this presentation, this TEDx that is pretty famous and well-watched. And I thought it was really interesting because in the middle of the presentation, you say, so it's 2018, you say, I'm gone to the future and I'm going to come back and I'm going to tell you these three important things. And the three things were that these developers are building a new financial system parallel to the existing one and they're going to replace it. There's a new business model being created, which is a services business that will be leaderless and people will have tokens. And the third was that someday a lot of people will quit their jobs because there'll be new ways to work. And I think saying those today, it doesn't sound very radical, but four or five years ago now, that was kind of out there. And you actually tell people, brace yourself, this is going to sound weird. I'm curious looking back on that because they were not only prescient, but they were also probably three of the most important things that have come out of this revolution. How do you feel about that today? And what do you think about it now looking back on it? One thing that's so fascinating to me is I had someone on my show who I forget, I think I had her on the show maybe a month ago or like six weeks ago. 
And she is a perfect living example of one of those people. She graduated from college last summer and because she had gotten into crypto and she was super into that. And, oh, I'm going to launch a crypto startup. So she initially did that. But then as she got even more involved in crypto, she was like, well, wait a second, a startup is centralized and I'm really enjoying my work with all these DAOs. So now she stepped back from the startup and she is what she calls a Web3 freelancer. And she just works for these different DAOs. It was so fascinating talking to her. By the way, if you want to listen to the episode, her name is Chase Chapman. She essentially works for three different DAOs in three different ways. At one of the DAOs, she's what's called a core contributor. So she's paid via a W-2, which is how most people make their income when they have an employer. At one of the others, she's paid like a normal freelancer, so 1099. And then the last DAO pays her in tokens. It's that DAO's tokens. And what's even more fascinating is that there's no set salary. Her coworkers, I guess you could call them, in the DAO, decide what she should be paid. She said what they do is they use this tool called Coordinate, like as an ape into a coin. If you go to the website, it says something like payroll for DAOs or something like that. And they basically log interactions. And then maybe at the end of the month, after the interactions are done, then people that you've worked with will say, oh, I think Chase's contribution is worth X amount. And then that's how it's determined. And you can, I think, protest to get a change if you want, but I think it's working out for them. And so this was an incredibly fascinating conversation I was having with her. But you're right that she's the living example of what I was talking about in that TEDx talk. I can't imagine what her accountant says when they're like, we have to file all these income statements. That's all I can think about as you're saying, she's a 1099, a W-2. Oh, and by the way, I have compensation voted by my peer group on a monthly basis and I have no idea what it's going to be. Exactly. <laughs> Let's move to Cryptopians and writing this book. At that point during the talk, you announced that you just got this book deal. You end up spending three years 200 interviews on background. It seems like an incredible amount of work to get to this point. Going into it, I mean, I've never written a book, but did you have a timeline or what you thought this would take to write this story? Or is it just you kept going and more and more time, more and more interviews to get to this body of work? Typically, when you get a book deal, most frequently, I think the deadline you have is 12 months. But because this was my first book, I actually asked for 18 months just because I thought, I don't really know what I'm doing. And I just want to make sure I am not too freaked out about it. And then for various reasons, it ended up stretching into what basically was three years. So I basically did a full year of reporting. Then I did six months of writing to meet that 18-month deadline. And then the editor wasn't pleased with the first draft. So I had to revise it. And that took by the time he figured out that he wanted me to revise it, it, I had like another, I forget, five or six months to turn that in. After he was happy with that, then it took six months to do the fact-checking. That's something that's happening concurrently with the book editing process at the publisher. But I had to hire my own fact-checker because that's not part of the official book editing process. So I was doing that with my own fact-checker and also doing the work with the publisher. And then I had a big news break. People may have heard this big hack in the middle of the book. It was, even to this day, it's still, I think, the biggest. It was the only existential crisis that Ethereum ever faced. My sources and I were able to figure out who we believe was behind the DAO attack, as it's known. That came right at the end as we were putting the finishing touches on the book. So we had to delay it after we'd already delayed it once for various reasons, including supply chain issues, because the pandemic has even affected the supply chain of book publishing. 
One thing I'm curious to dive into is that in crypto, it seems often that narratives control a lot. It's not necessarily valuation or truth or reality all the time. There are storylines that take over, whether we call them memes or just stories, I guess. When you were writing this, you clearly had this very strong journalistic background and wanting to get the facts, reporting this as historically accurate of what happened. The storyline, the characters, when you read it, it does feel sometimes like this can't be real. You can't have a teenage superhero. How did you balance that with the editors and strike that balance between how wild the story is with that facts on the ground? This is what I know reporting. You're saying the story is wild, but it's all so, so true. It's all very rigorously fact-checked. And anytime we only had something from one source, we would say it was from one source. So I know it seems unreal sometimes, but it is what really happened. You know, I got a lot of contemporaneous evidence. So when people were telling me things that seemed unbelievable, I would ask, do you have emails from that time? Photos, videos, any links that you can show me, recordings. There's a middle portion of the book where a lot of people said, hey, this really sketchy proposal was made to us in this phone call was so out there. We couldn't believe this person was suggesting this. And here is how they suggested it to us. And I kept asking, what words did they use? What exactly did they say? But writing in a book, this person proposed this quasi-illegal thing that just felt very dicey. And trying to put words in this person's mouth, it just felt like a scary proposition. So then I was super excited when I realized that there was a recording of this phone call. The person who had, or I don't know if they had the recording, but they at least knew of it. And they were the person who revealed to me that there was a recording of it. They were like, I'm not going to give this to you unless we're in person. But the thing is that the pandemic had started by then. And this person was in a different country. And the people in our two countries could not travel to each other's countries. So I basically worked them, like worked them, and was able to suggest something that was amenable to them and was able to get this tape. I was dancing around my apartment. This person is incredibly wealthy. If they wanted to, they could run me into the ground. But I have a tape of them saying this. So I can quote them word for word, I can quote liberally from the whole entire call. I just had like a certain comfort level with all that. And so for so many moments in the book, I was able to get some kind of corroborating evidence, or if not, then at least because it's a decentralized story, there were so many characters. I mean, the book opens with a list of 50 characters. And that was after I pared it down. If you're really going to talk about everybody who was involved, it's actually a bigger list. So after you hear these things, you go around to all the people like, okay, I heard such and such. Do you remember this? Do you remember that person saying that? Blah, blah, blah. Do you have a photo? Like whatever. And getting more and more evidence to back it up, or if not, at least to try to establish that there was a majority of people who you know would have that viewpoint. When you were just saying that you have to work and work the people, I'm curious what it's like to try to gather information in this space because yes, you're a journalist and people know you and there might be some inherent trust that you're a writer and you're not just going to make them look bad. But there's a deep desire for anonymity. Not everyone wants to tell the story or want to be a story be told. Even in this example, what was it like trying to convince or cajole some of these people to talk? Journalists call me all the time. and Oh God, it's a journalist. I don't want to be the story or be part of this. There's kind of an immediate gate you're concerned about. How was it like trying to convince these crypto, in some cases, billionaires to try to talk to you? Honestly, some parts of it was just plain luck. There are certain people who did interviews with me for the book, and I know they didn't talk to the two other authors who also tried to cover this story for their books. I don't know why 
frankly, I do think the fact that I had such a long running podcast before this and had established a certain reputation and my writing in Forbes and whatever, I think all of that actually helped as well. Because some people in a way already felt like they knew me. And I was known for asking tough questions and really getting to the bottom of things. And because sometimes, you know, you do these interviews and you might ask a question, the person just says a bunch of words, but they're not really answering your questions. They know that I will try my best to actually get a real answer or try to get the truth. And so I think all of those things helps people understand, like, I don't have an agenda. I'm just after what is the truth? What are the facts? I think reputational things did help. Some of it also was just people could tell maybe through the course of our conversations that I knew a lot already. At that point, they might then have an incentive to make sure I have the full story because maybe they know another side of it or they're on the side that maybe looks bad and they want to make sure that I include their perspective or whatever it might be. So people could have any number of reasons, but it really was all of those things. You talk about that list of all the characters and how many more people are in the story. I'm curious, in your opinion, if you were trying to just talk to one person, who was the person you most relied on? And then a follow-up would be, who's the person that you didn't get to speak to that you would have loved to have added in the book? I guess I'll have to go with Vitalik just because since he is the central character, getting inside of his head was really important, but it's frankly a really difficult thing to do. He is not the kind of person who is loquacious like me. (laughs) He is definitely more of a one sentence, one word answer type person. I don't get the sense that he has a very rich inner life, at least for certain topics or for people who haven't read the book, they'll read that, yeah, other people will talk about sort of emotional issues with Vitalik, you know, sensing that sometimes he maybe couldn't read people very well, that he himself was naive and he'll wax on and on about technology, but about his emotions maybe a bit less. But then in terms of people that I wish I had spoken to, that I didn't get to speak to, I mean, I spoke to pretty much nearly everybody I guess this isn't too much of a spoiler, but there's definitely a few characters that don't come across very well in the book. Some of those people didn't choose to speak to me. And one of them is somebody who is part of the main conflict in Ethereum for years, frankly. Her name is Ming Chan. She was the executive director of the Ethereum Foundation for like three years, slightly less than three years. And we didn't end up speaking. I almost don't know if I wish I had spoken to her though. For the longest time I did because she's in the book. And so it'd be good to have her perspective. But again, this is a little bit of a spoiler, but people will read. Everyone around her said that her perspective was skewed, not objective. Some people had far harsher words than that. But in a way, I do wonder if I had spoken to her, if that then would have been a tricky thing to deal with to like have this person that everybody views as not viewing reality the way everybody else does. And then trying to deal with incorporating that perspective, I wonder just how that would have gone. But one thing I will say is even though all these people had these criticisms of her, that I was able to get her in her own words at that time because I got chat logs and other messages that she was sending, written correspondence. That really shows who she was at that time. And so maybe that actually ended up being for the best, that that was the most accurate. Whereas interviewing her after the fact... I just don't know what she would have said. But in terms of the accuracy, since people call into question her objectivity, maybe it was for the best that the way she comes in the book is through her own words in these written formats. 
might be some spoilers in here, but I just want to dive into the book into some questions about how you think about it after writing it. So at the beginning, you have this balance of teams is too simplistic of a word, but you have crypto idealism, you have capitalists, you have technologists, and all these people are mixing together to create the foundation of Ethereum. Obviously, it's a very chaotic story, and this is just its nascent beginning. But how do you think about them coming together in that way and how that shaped the foundational part of Ethereum? It was so messy in the beginning. Vitalik himself was 19 when he came up with the idea, and he sent out the white paper for Ethereum on the day that Bitcoin crossed $1,000 for the first time. So people like at that moment were realizing, hey, we can make money from this. We can become rich from this. They were getting rich from it. Bitcoin millionaires became a thing around that time. And so when people saw this and they were like, hey, this is a really novel idea, there were dollar signs in people's eyes. They were like, hey, we can get in on the ground floor and we can turn our 1,000x Bitcoin gains into 1,000x Ethereum gains. And so they were interested in, yeah, enriching themselves from Ethereum. Vitalik himself definitely is that idealism in the title. Certain other of the co-founders and early workers in Ethereum that he attracted definitely are more of the greed and the lies part of the title. Frankly, because he was so young, it really took him a long time First of all, even recognize that there were people that maybe had self-interested motivations. Then it took him an even longer time to learn how to deal with that and to, frankly, just assert himself more. He was definitely seen as the leader, but because people knew that he didn't really have that personality to assert himself, people would just, frankly, try to sway him to their side. They knew that he was the ultimate arbiter, but that he himself didn't have as strong opinions as they all did. So they would be in his ear a lot. And then because he couldn't say no, then they would get their way. Something to be curious just to dive a little bit deeper on is that I think there's a scene where you describe the titles that everyone's fighting over. So Charles wants to be the CEO and very normal startup founding partners coming together and deciding who's in charge, who has the roles and responsibilities. And Vitalik picks the title of C-3PO to kind of show, and the book it illustrates a naivete and idealism and a youth not wanting to be part of that, but yet he still remains clearly in referential control over everything. So even though people are fighting for power, how did Vitalik maintain this influence and this dominance? I mean, clearly he's a technical genius, but there's been lots of battles where the CEO and the CTO are at odds. He wasn't even the CTO in this case. Ethereum launched in 2015, but as we all know, there have been many upgrades since then. Vitalik is the person who is often leading the research, making the visionary decisions. They felt that he was needed to shepherd Ethereum through the future, but he wasn't kind of the on-the-ground person building it all. There was a CTO who was doing that. So the CTO was Gavin Wood, who people may know because he has launched Polkadot now. But the other main developer who, similar to Vitalik, sort of shunned titles is somebody named Jeffrey Vilka or Jeffrey Wilkie, we would say in English. And he was this Dutch coder and he was the lead of the Go Ethereum client, which is now the dominant Ethereum client. And it has been ever since pretty much launch. These other people doing the on the ground coding, but Vitalik was that high level visionary. How do you feel about with all your experience in crypto, blockchain, decentralization, that a single figure has so much power? I think about when we were talking about this before, it wasn't the greatest example, but I think about if Warren Buffett died tomorrow, it doesn't matter to Berkshire Hathaway shareholders. If God forbid something happened to Vitalik as a young person, so much of the ecosystem relies on what does Vitalik think 
in a really interesting way. How does that square with his desire for decentralization, where he has so much influence over the direction? Oh, this is funny, because I actually think that if Vitalik somehow went away all of a sudden, right this second, that I think Ethereum would survive and it would basically be fine. Because now it's so big and there are so many people who are working on it independently that I don't know if I necessarily think that Vitalik is needed. The one caveat to that is that obviously we have all these new chains where they have built-in governance and Ethereum does not. So for that reason, you're right. Maybe there is more dependence on Vitalik than there would be otherwise. But generally, I do think that the success of Ethereum is really despite the many mistakes he made early on. So my book ends in January 2018. And I would say already at that point that it was pretty clear that even if Vitalik went away, Ethereum would survive because by then there were already so many people interested in it and working on it. How did you think about the battle between the nonprofit status and the for-profit status? I think one thing that's interesting for people, and this is why I think the book is just a great place to start if you're trying to understand about crypto, is that after they buy Bitcoin, maybe they buy Ethereum, and the next thing they do is they might buy Polkadot or Cardano. They name these chains, and they have no idea that all of these people started off together in the same spot. But how did you think about that early tension between this, should we be a nonprofit or a for-profit? And then a lot of those founders... There's a joke, everyone was Ethereum founder going off to start their own for-profit versions. So one of the themes that I feel that I saw in the book over and over again was this battle between the business guys and the tech guys or the developers. And this played out very early on around this question around whether or not Ethereum should be structured as a for-profit or non-profit. And this is basically the Web 2 versus Web 3 debate in a nutshell. The business guys felt that Ethereum should be closed sourced and it should be a for-profit that basically profits off the data of its customers, a very traditional model nowadays. And the developers were like, no, it has to be open source and it has to be decentralized like Bitcoin. It needs to not have this hierarchy and it needs to be something for the people, owned by the people. Ultimately, they won out because they were building this thing. And this is part of this longer trend in general that I feel that we've just seen over the last few decades where the power used to be in finance. Oh, okay, you're a top grad from one of these top schools. You're going to go work on Wall Street. That is not the case anymore. In the early 2000s, it shifted to, oh, you're going to work in Silicon Valley. You're going to go to Google or Facebook or Amazon or Apple or whatever. And then now, you know, we're reading about these Silicon Valley executives jumping ship and going into crypto to these decentralized networks and protocols and blockchains. Now it's the power center is moving from Silicon Valley to the globe. And the pandemic has only accelerated that. But essentially now developers really are the people with power. They're the ones, they're building it. So ultimately, when it comes to designing these things, they will just frankly have a greater say. And because now they can do it in this tokenized way, they can generate money for themselves. They don't need the business people to like pay them salaries. And so that's why we're seeing a lot of these developers create their own tokens and you know whatever it is. They can make so much more money from that than they can if they're going to go be a programmer at Goldman Sachs or whatever it is. I'm not going to lie. It does have its own problems because since they get liquidity so quickly, like a lot of these people... They don't necessarily succeed with their product, but they have made so much money that they kind of don't need to work anymore. And so you see a lot of these projects that kind of launch and never really get anywhere, (laughs) which is another issue. But the point is that in general, we're seeing this shift from power being amongst business people to power shifting to developers. I truly think that this is actually just going to play out in an even greater way over the next few decades. 
you know, with the technologists running, we hear a lot about how Web3 is hard to approach. The UI UX is horrible for a normal person showing up that it's really difficult for them to get involved. Do you think that's because the pendulum is its early beginnings was written for developers by developers that that programmer ethos was like, this is the best way to do it, even though your average person has no idea how to interact with it? I actually think it's more just that the technology is so young because there are more user experience type people getting involved now. But you're right that even now, like I covered this day in and day out and I have a hard time using this technology. I just think it's really just because it's so new. You know, it's just the same way that before AOL made it really easy to get on the internet, it was harder. There are certain popular wallets like MetaMask or whatever, but it's still hard to use them, I think. And basically, give it some time. That's what I would say. Obviously, if you're going to write a story about the founding of Ethereum, you're going to write about the DAO. The DAO was the first decentralized autonomous organization to raise money and try to do governance. Why don't you just give the listeners kind of a snapshot of what the DAO was? And then I have some questions about how you ended up going after the attacker. You can think of the DAO as a decentralized venture fund. What they were going to do was raise all this money. They were going to raise Ether and give people back DAO tokens. And then people could use their DAO tokens to vote on these proposals that would come before the DAO. And if a proposal was adopted, those people would go build that service or whatever. And then any profits or revenue, the DAO would get some percentage from that. And then the DAO token holders would be able to profit. It ended up raising $140 million, which was crazy. Because at that time, Ethereum was less than a year old. And the technology, as much as we're saying it's difficult to use now, it was way harder back then. So it just goes to show you how by then we had Bitcoin millionaires. And then now, nine months after Ethereum launched, there were now probably, I don't know if they were Ether millionaires, but they were definitely people who were looking to parlay their gains with Ether into something new. It ended up becoming the largest crowdfunded project in all of history at that time. It was just bonkers because, like I said, totally new technology, difficult to use. Okay, so the DAO gets launched and then it famously gets hacked. Yeah, within a few weeks. Within a few weeks, starts draining millions of dollars. I think it was like a third of the pool just starts leaving. 31%. And so you have this new chain, this big event, crowdsourcing headlines. And then suddenly, just a couple of weeks later, the money starts being siphoned off. Amazing storyline. Again, it's hard to believe all this is true, even though I know it is just such a wild story. You couldn't write it better. Was it your intent to try to figure out from the beginning, like, I would love to know who it is? Oh, yeah. Some of the smartest tech brains have been trying to find this person. There's a lot of incentive. Is it worth going for? Oh, no, I totally, totally was like, am I going to be able to figure this out? I really wanted to. You know, I was trying. I cannot even begin to tell you how many hours I spent in these long interviews, going over these blockchain trends. I mean, it was just, uh, yeah, it was a lot of work. You went from writing a story to suddenly detective on a global scale. What was the process like trying to track down who the hacker was? At the time of the hack, there was somebody who had started an investigation. They had worked at one of the exchanges and they had identified some suspicious transactions. And so they were actually messaging the people who are trying to rescue the remaining money about it saying like, hey, I think I might have identified somebody. It looks like it's part of a group. They're based here. This is what they do, blah, blah, blah. And what I did was I tried to continue that person's investigation. I looked into what was actually happening with all those transactions. You know, what caused them to fall under suspicion? Was the theory about like what was going on with that transactions, was that theory correct? So I just had to do a lot of interviews. And that part was interesting because exchanges, 
you can't just call up any exchange and be like, tell me about, you know, what this user on your platform did or who they were transacting. Like, they're not going to do that. But I did manage to actually find out what was really going on. I ended up interviewing all of those people that came under the initial investigation. And I had written the first draft of the book in a way where I, you know, laid out the original reasons they fell under suspicion, what was going on really with those transactions, whether or not the hypothesis was correct. Then my interviews with those people, basically they all denied it. And I was just going to present all that sort of as a, I've completed this investigation. I did the homework. You can decide whatever you want to think. I didn't have any conclusion. As we were finishing what's called the last three passes, which are very final, final, you're just making the last minimal, minimal changes. With the second pass, which is a time when maybe you'd make 100 changes in the whole book, one of my sources was like, hey, he was based in Brazil and he had been involved in rescuing the money. And he said, hey, the Brazilian federal police opened an investigation into the Dow and by extension into me. And I was thinking I would commission a report to exonerate myself. And these reports are somewhat expensive. So he thought, who else can use this information? And he thought of me. And so he got a discount on the report in exchange for credit in my book. And so we went over these transactions and we could see, because the hacker ended up with a coin called Ethereum Classic. They didn't get their Ether because Ethereum did something called a hard fork, which was this change where they essentially erased what happened with the DAO. So this person ended up with this coin that was a new coin. It's not very usable. And in order to turn it into something that they could actually turn into real money, they were converting it to Bitcoin. But they were using an exchange where it didn't take your personally identifying information. But because it didn't, it also restricted your transactions to $2,500 or less. So this person had tons of money, but they could only cash out $2,500 or less at a time. And Alex and I, this was the Brazilian source, he and I were going over like the patterns and the cash outs. And we noticed that they typically happened during an Asian morning to night schedule. But the thing is that the suspects I had already spoken to, they were all based in Europe. So then we were kind of looking at their social media profiles. You know, do they keep weird hours? But no, their online hours were definitely all Europe. Then it was like, hmm, these Asian cash out times. But then I also had a customer service email that the hacker had sent to this one exchange when they had been preparing their hack. It was the same exchange that doesn't take personally identifying information. And I saw from that email, they're a fluent English speaker. So then I was like, okay, Asian morning to night schedule, but they're fluent in English. It doesn't appear to be these people that I've interviewed. So then I sent the data that I had to Chainalysis, which is this company that they've been helping me with all kinds of things. Meanwhile, I had to tell my publisher, I want two more weeks to go through this. And they were like, no, 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 no. The book is like nearly done. You can't make changes to it now. They were just like, what are you thinking? So meanwhile, I am hounding Chainalysis to the point where I was, these people are never going to talk to me again. (laughs) I was like, I'm harassing them. They just think I'm crazy. They want me to give up. They're just like, stop bothering us. But then thankfully, yes, they finally did get back to me. I didn't know that they had this ability to demix transactions that have been purposely obscured in what's called a coin join. So basically, there's this application called Wasabi, and you can mix your coins with a bunch of other coins in these transactions that it obscures the trail. For somebody who happens to see your transactions on the other side, they won't know where the money came from. So they won't know it's your money that you got from you know hacking the DAO that you then turned into Bitcoin, supposedly. 
But Chainalysis was able to demix them and saw that the Bitcoins on the other side went to these four exchanges. So as we said, exchanges have privacy policies. However, I was able to find out what happened to the deposited Bitcoin at one of those exchanges. And it was converted to this privacy coin called Grin. And then it was withdrawn to a Grin node. And that Grin node had a human readable address, which is grin.toby.ai. So for people who read my Forbes article that came out the day the book was published, they will already know what this means. Basically, the person that I believe is the hacker used Toby AI everywhere on Twitter, on Reddit, on GitHub, on AngelList, on Stack Overflow, on Medium, you know, you name it. There were like 16 of these accounts that I found all pointing to the same person. And the thing is that that Grin node that had the Toby.ai in it was also hosting what are called Bitcoin Lightning nodes, which is a layer on top of the Bitcoin network. And that Bitcoin Lightning node was named 10x. And this person that I believe hacked the DAO, Toby Honish, he not only used Toby AI everywhere, but then he also was the co-founder of 10X. And so then once we had this, then I went back to what was happening at the time of the DAO. And I looked into what was Toby Honish doing at the time of the DAO. He was incredibly into the DAO. He was very active in the DAO Slack. He identified some flaws in the DAO. He reached out to the creator saying, hey, there are these flaws. You need to fix them. They were like, you know, we recognize there are these flaws, but they're not urgent. And then he takes to Medium, writing these blog posts with multiple exclamation points about these vulnerabilities. What he was writing about actually is what forced Ethereum to hard fork eventually, because the vulnerability that he identified is, yeah, what forced him to hard fork. And yeah, after the hack, he was tweeting things that were pro letting the hacker keep their coins and anti doing something that would remove their coins. So it all fit both in terms of what happened on the money that had been laundered and then the money, sorry, what he was doing at the time of the DAO. So, oh, and then the last bit is that because I'd already written that piece in the book and it was so late in the editing process, my publisher was like, okay, so we'll delay it, but you have to just excise what you wrote and then insert roughly the same number of words about the new revelations. And so I fit that in. But that's why also, if you read the Forbes article, there's just more information in the Forbes article because I had more space than I had in the book. When you found out you thought you had the lead and you have this book being published, how nervous were you if someone else is going to break the story or I'm going to lose control of it? I've talked to lots of people. I'm getting closer and closer and closer. Can I publish this? What if this isn't the person and I'm about to go claim something that could ruin their life? What was that sitting on the information like and all of your fact checking before announcing? So first of all, I need to mention that I reached out to Toby Honish. First of all, I was trying to get an interview. When he didn't respond to the interview, then finally we just sent fact checking, which is just a Google Doc with all the statements about him in the book, plus additional questions, things like that. And I remember that when I sent it, it was something like 2 a.m. New York time. Oh, uh, by the way, I, the last piece I forgot to mention is that he lives, or at least at the time of the DAO attack, he was living in Singapore and speaks fluent English. Those were the other clues where, you know, it fit the profile. But the point is that I think he must still live in Asia. And, you know, I happen to have the Google Doc open on my computer and I could see he was in it. And so there was this like a moment of adrenaline in the middle of the night for me where I was like, oh my God, oh my God, now he knows why I'm reaching out to him. But also I took a screenshot because I was like, okay, now I know for certain that he knows what I am going to write about him in the book. Because you never want to publish anything without like giving that other person a chance to, to respond or like to know what's going to be said. You don't want to like just 
shock them and upend their life by, you know, publishing this thing without having reached out or anything like that. He knew then, okay, this is good because like now I know that he knows. And if he responds, then great. And if he chooses not to, I know that he's made that choice. And I very clearly gave him this deadline, et cetera. And he did finally send a statement saying, your statement and conclusion is factually inaccurate. And then he offered to give me more details if I wanted. And I immediately wrote back and I said, yes, please send me more details. But he did not. And then when we did the Forbes article, we did the same thing again, because especially now there were even more details we were going to include. And we put all that in the document, no response. So we just included the one statement from him. But then to answer your other question, yeah, I was definitely very nervous that we would somehow get scooped. The publisher actually decided that what would be best is if we didn't name them in the book, because there's so much time in between when you close a book and then when the book comes out. And so they said, it's better if you get a news outlet to break the news. They're better equipped anyway to handle news and like promote news and just get the word out. So yeah, we kind of ended up pursuing this dual strategy. But I remember I pitched it to multiple outlets before going with my old editors at Forbes. I couldn't give them the name and everything because I didn't want them to steal it from me. So I was like having to pitch it in this way where I couldn't really reveal how good my evidence was. And so some of them said, oh, well, what if it's like when Newsweek tried to say that Dorian Nakamoto was Satoshi Nakamoto. I knew the difference between my evidence and then that evidence. It was kind of hard since I couldn't reveal it. The point is, my Forbes editors, they know me, they know my work, they know understand blockchain. And the way they proceeded was they fact-checked the crucial bits of evidence first. And once they were satisfied that that evidence was strong, then they said, yeah, let's proceed. As someone who wasn't there, and when your book came out and the headline, it like took over Twitter and the whole world was, you know, talking about the Dow hacker. And there was lots of sides of, of course, I knew it and all this like accusation. But one thing that I found interesting was, and maybe this is from not having a non-technical background, but you've got senators in front of blockchain entrepreneurs telling them that the Russian government and bad guys are going to hide their money and use Wasabi and go through all of Tornado. And I'm like, Okay, so there's all these things that we have this battle of censorship, resistance and anonymity and your rights, and I'm all for it. And then the thing that I read was like, this woman just undid all of it. So how hard is the technology to hack if Chainalysis and Laura can just start calling exchanges and undo it? And I don't know if you faced any questions about that, but I'm curious as kind of a big name in the space, how you feel about the fact that, yes, I'm happy that if something bad happened and we could undo it. But I thought that the whole point was that if someone did hack, you probably couldn't ever find them again. No, no. I personally think that the big takeaway... Well, I mean, there's multiple big takeaways, but one of them definitely is don't do illicit activity on any kind of blockchain because eventually forensics will catch up to you. A couple of weeks before my book came out, also the government now charged that couple with laundering the Bitcoins from the 2016 Bitfinex hack. That hack happened in August 2016. The Dow hack happened in June 2016. So six years later, or five and a half years later for both of them. So in my case, you know, I found the hacker. We still don't know who hacked Bitfinex, but at least we know who, or at least the government has strong evidence of who had that money from that hack. In both cases, it just goes to show forensics give it long enough. These transactions are public. They leave fingerprints everywhere. So it's not a good idea to try to do something illicit. And frankly, if you talk to prosecutors who have prosecuted crimes in crypto, they will all tell you that they would much prefer to prosecute a crime done with some kind of blockchain-based money. You know, I'm doing this new narrative podcast on that couple. 
And I interviewed one of the prosecutors who worked on that case. And this person was just like, as I was investigating this, I just kept thinking it would be so awesome if every investigation was done with blockchain. They were just like, this is heaven compared to using the traditional financial system to try to do this with these kinds of investigations. It's like paperwork, basically, to these other governments, and they may not get back to you right away. But with a blockchain-based transaction, it's just like, literally, you can look it up on Etherscan or blockchain.com or whatever. It's just like software running in your computer. You can look at stuff. This person was just, that is my big takeaway from prosecuting crypto crimes. Like now, I love it. I If I could, I would choose to only do those. So that's why I do think a lot of this rhetoric around crypto being just full of illicit activity and blah, blah, blah. First of all, it's not true when you look at the numbers. The percentages of illicit activity in the traditional financial system are much higher, like 2 to 5% of all financial transactions. But in crypto, it's 0.015% of all crypto transactions. Granted, I mean, some of it is just, I think the technology is so new. So over time, I would imagine it would be at least more similar. I don't know if it would ever be exactly the same for the reasons I just mentioned. But for people now who are doing all these DeFi hacks and stuff, I would just say, watch out. Like in a few years, people might come knocking at your door. Why do you think you were able to find the DAO hacker before the government was? Blockchain, I agree that it does seem easier for a prosecutor to go after someone when there's a digital trail and they connect the dots. But why you and why not didn't we hear that the federal government had found who the DAO hacker was? They just weren't looking at it. The DAO basically got erased. And the DAO hacker now only had Ethereum Classic. They converted the Ethereum Classic to roughly 282 Bitcoins, which now is about $11 million. I guess from the government's perspective, it's not a lot of money. But at that time, it was only... I forget, was it like roughly 250? It was like a quarter of a million dollars at that time. So it was really not a large sum. And I think because people largely felt the Dow got resolved, I think that's why the government wasn't pursuing it. So there was no competition just because I was actually working on it and they weren't. Is this going to be a movie? Who's playing you in the most probably exciting story I've read about this space? What do you think about that? <laughs> so there is another author who wrote a book on this topic. And her book came out in June 2020, and she just announced a movie deal. So it's like almost two years later. So all I can say is I can't talk about anything about it. But that just gives you a sense of the timeline on these things. Laura, this has been a lot of fun. At the end of the podcast, I'm really excited to get your perspective as someone who interviews lots of people, has had a front row seat, as you said, to the most suspenseful movie that will be written for generations. What are you most excited to see built in this space or created in the space over the next six months? And what are you most excited about crypto over the next six years? So probably for the next six months, it's definitely got to be the merge. Because this is such a tricky operation. For people who don't know, Ethereum is switching from proof of work to proof of stake which means the way that they kind of keep all the ledgers in sync, the engine for that is completely swapping out to this new mechanism. And no other blockchain really has done that, at least as far as I know, especially not a blockchain with as much economic activity on it as Ethereum. Everybody kind of talks about how this is like swapping out the engine on a plane as it's in mid-flight. It's definitely something that level of trickiness. And so it was delayed recently. They thought initially they might 
do it in June, but now it'll probably be more like the second half of the year. I will definitely be watching for how well that goes because there's so much competition right now. Like a lot of people kind of nipping at Ethereum's heels, wanting some of that smart contract pie. We will see how that all plays out if they lose some of their market share there. I mean, they already are. And then I'll say DAOs for my six-year horizon because as I'm watching things happen in crypto, it feels like everything is trending towards DAOs. When you look at DeFi, all the DeFi protocols are... Well, not all, but many of them are becoming these decentralized autonomous organizations using tokens to govern, putting up proposals, whatever. When you also look at the NFT space, which is another really hot area of crypto right now, again, many of those are becoming DAOs. Board Ape Yacht Club, which is launched like a year ago. Now, in addition to the Board Apes, they have their own coin, Ape. You know, we're going to see what happened. And, and when they announced it, they announced this Ape Coin DAO. So we'll see how all that plays out. But, you know, this is my theory, really, from the TEDx talk. Oh, DAOs are going to be the way people, you know, they're not going to work for these big centralized employers. They're going to work for these decentralized networks. And we're already seeing that. It's not just Chase Chapman who is working for these DAOs, but there are a lot of other people. And I really think it's going to be like a revolution in the way we work and in the way we offer products and services on the internet. When you do your future and come back, I'm sure you'll be right again. So this has been a lot of fun today. Laura, thank you for the time. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 